And this morning I'll be reading from Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home, and many were gathered together, so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks, Thanks be, to, be God. to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. Oh, fully silent. Good morning. We are here. Uh, I'm Travis. Uh, I'm the new pastor here. Uh, good to be with you. Uh, I will be wearing a mask this morning out of an abundance of caution. I was exposed to COVID last weekend, but have tested more times than my nasal passages would like to admit, uh, and it continue to not show any symptoms. So glad to be with you all, but just want to uh, continue to abide by our guidelines. Uh, you may have heard uh, painfully in the news yesterday that uh, a young man walked into a grocery store in Buffalo, New York, uh, and shot 13 people uh, and killed 10 of them, predominantly most of whom were black. It's clear from his uh, postings leading up to this event that it was a racially motivated attack. And 10 souls are gone simply for being black at the wrong place at the wrong time. It's happened again. I can't help but ask, how long, oh Lord? How long? Uh, it's feeling particularly painful for me this morning. Uh, maybe it is for you. Maybe you feel desensitized because we've experienced way too many of these things. Uh, maybe you feel vulnerable, angry, confused, numb. Wherever you are this morning, I invite you to bring that in before the God who can do something about all these things. And before transitioning to our sermon, I just want to briefly say a few things to us about this. First is that the Lord will judge. He does not overlook injustice. He is not silent in the face of evil. Whether he answers that at the cross in his son Jesus or whether that gets answered at the final judgment, justice will come. Second, the Lord will comfort. 
we can still say with the psalmist, yea, though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we can fear no evil because you are with us. At the same time, it's abundantly clear that our nation's problem with violence and prejudice, the epidemic of racism, continues. And the root of this must come out. We have to do the work of prayer, reflection, and reconciliation that we as a society have not yet done. But I am thankful and thank God that we as Christians have the power for that, not in ourselves, not in our learning, not in our wisdom, but in Jesus Christ the hope for sinners reconciled to God. So let's not, as the church, either be silent or afraid in speaking and addressing these things because we and we alone, not self-righteously but humbly, have the one remedy for sin, which is the hope of the gospel. I know that we are a community that cares about these things, and I want to encourage us just to continue to lament and pray and hope together in the midst of these things as we seek and strive to make God's kingdom, to make his will done here on earth as it is in heaven. Uh, There's no easy way to transition from the heaviness of this weekend to our text this morning, but we are going to transition nonetheless. Uh, We're continuing in the series that I started last week with some selections from the Gospel of Mark that I'm calling Meeting the Real Jesus, Uh, not the Jesus that we like to understand, not the Jesus as we would imagine him, but the real Jesus who is the way that Scripture presents him on his own terms. And perhaps there's no better moment than today for knowing who Jesus really is because we're prone to shrink him down, to make him small, to round off the difficult rough edges of what it is to encounter him. And I don't want us to do that because then we can either end up rejecting a God who isn't real or putting our hope in a God who doesn't feel strong enough for the world that we face. We need, our society needs, our world needs the real Jesus. And I hope that's who we encounter through Mark's gospel through this series. And today we're going to be focusing on the Jesus who prioritizes forgiveness. Prioritizes it even over other things that we might think ought to come first. And he does that in times and in ways, even in this passage, that can be confusing. So I want us to look at that and how, through seeing that priority of forgiveness that Jesus has, how that changes how we understand who he is and how that forgiveness actually changes us. So we're going to look at four things. Don't panic. It's not four additional longer points. It's three points organized in four ways. So you get the same amount of time but chopped up differently so that you don't fall asleep, I hope. So we're going to look at four things together. First, an unexpected moment in verses 1 through 4. Second, an unexpected healing in verse 5. Third, an unexpected lesson in verses 6 through 11. And finally, the result of the unexpected. So an unexpected moment, healing, lesson, and its result. Before we get into those things, I'd ask you to bow your head and your hearts with me as we pray and ask God to fill up our time.
Father, we still our hearts before you this morning. We ask in many ways, how long, O Lord? And yet we know that you are patient and long-suffering, that you are patient with us in our own shortcomings. You are merciful with us in the ways that our hearts are hard. You are faithful with us when we wander away. You are gracious with us when we do not understand. You are always our good, gentle, and loving Savior. So come now this morning. Save us from all that is without and all that is within, that we might be back with you where you intended us to be in the first place. It's in your Son's name and by your powerful Holy Spirit that we pray. Amen. Beginning here in verses 1 through 4, what we see is an unexpected moment. These, these scenes, if you've been a Christian for a while, or if you've been familiar with the church, or even the gospel, can feel familiar. We can read them, gloss over them, and not really enter into them. So what I want us to do is just imagine this scene a little bit, so that we can start to, to grasp the weight of what it is that Jesus says and does. So this is a man, the text calls him a paralytic, someone that was completely unable to walk. We don't know the severity of that, but it could be that he may have been unable even to sit up, that he could have been completely paralyzed from the neck down. And friends of his, good friends of his clearly, are carrying him to Jesus, to a man who has started healing, who is bringing the renewal of God to this place and time. They want to get him in front of Jesus, but they get to the door of this, what, what feels like a revival meeting, right? And they can't get through the door. It's packed. I don't know if you've gone to a concert or a show or whatever it may be, and you just can't get in. It's too full of people. That's what they're experiencing here. They're trying to get their friend through the door, and they just can't do it. So they don't stop there. They don't get stuck just when the obstacle presents before them, but they keep going. What do they do? They go up the little ladder that led around to the roof of these small houses. They would have been single-story houses, maybe 25 feet across, and what do they do when they get up there? They start to tear the roof apart. Uh, literally, in the original language, it says they unroof the roof, right? This is, this is a big engagement, a demolition even, on their part. They are, uh, they are doing something that everyone inside would notice and everyone outside would notice. These are not uh, light roofs. These were sturdy roofs. You could sleep on them. You could do work on them. This would require a lot of effort to start tearing things out. They're doing major construction on a city block without a permit, right? <laughs> People would be taking notice. Someone is out there with a book writing up a fine, right, that they've entered in to do this project in this way without the proper codes. And after that demolition, right, imagine we're sitting here right now and someone just starts to take the center off of the roof, you're going to notice. We'll be all moving away, we're not sure what's happening, and then someone is lowered slowly through the roof down in front of you. That says they lowered him on his bed. The, the word is, is pallet. Uh, it's hard to know exactly what that means, but this is not like a palatial four-post king-size bed, right? This, this, this is just something that he was able to rest on. This is not a particularly glorious thing that he is being lowered down on. Imagine this scene. Imagine the strangeness and awkwardness of this moment. Now imagine that you are the person that has been lowered down, is being lowered down, in the midst of all these people. What are you feeling? 
What are you thinking? Would you be nervous? Certainly. You could probably feel all eyes on you as you were coming in, in a way that no one else comes in, through the roof. He's not just coming in through the roof. This is not some sort of concert performance where he is just appearing, right, on wires out of the sky. He is coming in as a paralytic, as someone whose body is broken, as a person who people would notice first for what is different about him before they would notice what's the same. Maybe you can identify with that. Maybe you know what that feeling is like. Maybe you know what that feeling is like at church. That feeling of being visibly different from others would be on steroids here because this is happening in a culture where, as one commentator explains, many people associated health problems in your life with a punishment from God for sin. This is a culture that generally associated things that went wrong with your body as a reflection of punishment from God for your sin, which means this is not just like uh, an injured or disabled person coming before them in the eyes of the crowd. This is someone that they're seeing as not just a bodily broken person, but as a sinful person, as a deeply sinful person. That's what they would be thinking. This guy must be deeply sinful. I wonder what he did to have something this bad go wrong in his life. He's descending as a sinner, as an outcast, as a moral leper in the midst of them. So this is certainly an unexpected setting for Jesus to be talking about forgiveness. You have demolition, interruption, shame. This is a setting where you and I, if we're sitting in the crowd, might respond with shock, with frustration. We don't do well with things like this. I was just at the airport yesterday. My flight kept getting delayed and delayed. Everyone around me, probably even including me, starts to feel like, what is going on, right? Like You've come here to hear Jesus. You're feeling like, what is going on? But Jesus responds with grace. He starts revealing something of his surprising approach, his priority towards forgiveness through an unexpected healing. That turns us to our second point in verse 5. Because verse 5 tells us that Jesus sees the group's faith that he could heal this man. He sees their faith in these actions, that they believe that Jesus could heal him physically. They believed that he could heal an impossible physical problem, paralysis. Jesus sees this and decides to actually give them more than they asked for. Because Jesus wants to fix something that is an impossible spiritual problem. They think he can heal an impossible physical problem. He sees that faith and says, I want to do one better. I want to heal an impossible spiritual problem. This is where his his priority of forgiveness starts to shine out. Because he wants to fix a problem they haven't asked about. He wants to fix a problem they're not even thinking about, a problem that the text itself says is actually much harder to solve. Verse 7 says that the people understand that forgiveness is something that God alone can do. It's a high bar. 
Clearly, they're there for this man's health. They're asking for a miracle for his body, and Jesus sees something beyond just that problem. He sees a problem that stretches beyond his body, even beyond his life. He sees the problem of sin, which is crippling his soul, the problem where we look for fulfillment and freedom somewhere that they can't really be found. The problem when we're thinking that we're always just on the cusp of having what our souls so deeply want, of, of finally keeping it, of finally having it in its fullest degree. And Jesus wants to heal that big, stubborn problem where we keep chasing the things that don't chase us back. This is a problem that only God can solve because as Scripture points out, it's actually a problem that we all share. Scripture doesn't see some people as sinful and some as the good people. It sees everyone as broken equally. That means that unlike this man's physical paralysis, there's no one else to carry him in front of Jesus. Everyone, in Scripture's point of view, is spiritually paralyzed, equally unable to carry ourselves or one another to a place where we might find healing. This is a problem that no one of us can solve, which means we need someone who is not just one of us, to come and solve it. Jesus sees a problem that no one is asking about and a problem that no one else can help with, and he steps in. I want us to see here that in doing that, he's not overlooking this man's greatest need. He's not overlooking a greater need by offering forgiveness instead of healing his body in that moment. He's actually being generous. He is moving toward the greatest need of his life, the need that's not going away, the need that no one else can help with. He is stepping beyond the smaller requests that they made to the much greater requests that they weren't even able to articulate. He's getting at the root, even, of addressing the elephant in the room about how people see this man. Again, people would be thinking, this guy is a sinner. He must be totally terrible for this to have happened in his life. And in that context, where people saw his brokenness as a reflection of being a deep, terrible sinner, what does Jesus say to him? Son, your sins are forgiven. He takes all the air out of their shame and judgment and gives the man back his God-given dignity, his value. Jesus doesn't just aim to change his body. He takes aim at changing their minds about how they think of this person. He takes aim at that much harder target to hit, the value, the worth, the dignity of a life in community. He's trying to fix a problem that wouldn't change just because this man got physically healed. People would still be thinking, yeah, but you were that person. God's going to get you again. It's still going to come back around for you again. He is working on the thing that even if the man's body was made whole, the community impression of him may not change. He's not being stingy by overlooking the physical healing in this moment by stepping past it. He's working harder. 
Do you see the complexity of Jesus? Do you see the power of his forgiveness to not just change the dynamics of one person's soul, but to change the dynamics of an entire community in relation to that one person? Do you see that he wants to do more than you or I might expect, more than they might expect? If you don't, that's okay, because you're actually in good company. There were some people in this scene who weren't ready to talk about Jesus focusing on forgiveness like this. And maybe that's where you are, too. And for those in that camp, Jesus offers our third point here, an unexpected lesson, verses 6 through 11. In these verses, Jesus teaches a lesson in forgiveness in response to the thoughts of the scribes. Those would be the the teachers of the law. Those would be, you might call them the Bible superstars right now, right? The people who really know their stuff, right? The the A-list, all-star Christians. You can ask them where a book of the Bible is. They'll tell you a page. You want to know the verse, they know exactly where. These were the experts in God's word. That's these folks who witnessed this unexpected healing and they didn't like what they saw. Verse 6 to 7 tells us what they think about Jesus' surprising priority on forgiveness. It tells us that they're not doubting that this man needs forgiveness or that forgiveness is possible. They're asking, who is Jesus to claim that he can forgive this person? As Andrea was talking about, does he really have the power to say that, to do that? Because they knew, as verse 7 says, only God can forgive. And in claiming to forgive, they think he is guilty of blasphemy, of claiming to be God, of taking on attributes of God to himself. Because the scripture does tell us forgiveness does belong to God. And claiming to be God, if you are not God, is a very serious problem. It's at least a delusion and a detachment from reality. But biblically speaking, this is a capital offense. This is something that needs to be stopped, punishable by death even, in ancient Israel. Unless, of course, it's God that's claiming to be God. This is what they are thinking. This guy is out of his mind. This is not how things work. This isn't what he should be doing. Jesus knows this. He knows their hearts. It says he knew it in his spirit. And he says in verses 8 through 9, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? In other words, it's as if Jesus is saying, you would be less frustrated with me if I just healed his body. You'd be less frustrated with me if I was content to pay a much smaller price than I want to pay. You'd be less frustrated with me if I didn't heal more than they asked me to. You're frustrated with me because your categories are too small. You wouldn't be bothered if I claimed power to do something smaller, if I just left this much bigger problem alone. This is the unexpected lesson, that their categories are too small to capture real life and the real God. 
their picture of God is bumping up against the real God. Their expectations of God is coming to a grinding halt in the face of the real God before them. And this is not just an ancient problem. We, I, have this problem too. But for us, it looks a little bit different in our cultural setting. We might say things like, say, forget the audacity of claiming to have the power for forgiveness. Who is Jesus to tell me that I need forgiveness? Who is anyone to tell me that forgiveness is actually my greatest need, my greater need than anything else that I might acknowledge for myself? It's narrow-minded, it's restrictive, it's unhelpful at best. Jesus might respond similarly to the way that our hearts tend to approach forgiveness by saying, which is easier? To say once and for all, for anyone who believes in me, that everything you have ever done wrong or ever will do wrong is completely wiped away at the cross. Or to say, choose your own way and I'll see if you get there. Which is easier, to save everyone from all our mistakes, from a universal spiritual paralysis, or to let each of us only try to make our way towards wholeness? Which is easier? And really, which would be harder for Jesus to do? Which of these things would cost him more to heal one person's body or to heal everyone who ever believes in him from all the brokenness of sin? It's almost a very simple mathematical problem. Which is harder, to solve the problem of one person or seven billion people? Which will take more work? The cross would show it was absolutely harder absolutely more costly to heal our sins. It would require much more of Jesus. The healing of this man only cost him a hole in the roof of the house that he was staying in. It cost him the grumbling of the local experts on the Bible, and it cost him maybe the loss of a train of thought in a sermon. But the greater healing, the healing of sins, the cross cost him holes in his hands and his feet and his side. It cost him the taunts and the shame of his own people, the very ones that he created in him. And it cost him the loss, not of just a train of thought, but of his life. It was the cross that showed he had the authority to forgive sins, not by working miracles, not by impressing us with the greatness of who he was, but by stepping into our place, by becoming most truly one of us, by bleeding and dying in our place. Showing that he would not misuse his authority, but go as far as he needs to go to bring us home, even if it cost him so much. The problem is not that God's forgiveness is too restrictive. The problem is not that God's forgiveness is presumptuous. The problem is that it's too expansive for us to get our arms around. He's taking on more problems than we can even think of, more problems that we can even ask about. So the question is, do we want too little from God?
Have we gotten too used to the idea that we're not worth a gift like a full, free, total forgiveness? That we're not worth a Jesus like this who would step in for us like this, who would see us at our worst moments and come running to us? Have we gotten used to the idea that we're just not worth it? Jesus doesn't see you that way. I pray that we can stop thinking that God is stingy and selfish and restrictive and see the love of a God who wants to go beyond where you can even imagine. The challenge of our text is to see a Jesus who can actually challenge you who can do more than we think he can do. A Jesus who challenges my smaller categories of what needs fixing because our text shows us a God who wants to do so much more for you, who wants to heal so much more for you. You want $10 worth of healing. God wants to give you $10 billion. You want healing that might last for a small season in your life. God wants to give you an eternal healing. You want healing that's just particular to your body, to your finances, to your relationships. God wants to turn the entirety of our worlds upside down that we might be home again. This is the greatness of God, and yet we also see the gentleness the condescension of God who is willing to pay not only this great higher price, but the lower price, the smaller thing that we ask as well. This brings us to the fourth point, the result of the unexpected in verse 12. Because in verse 12, despite Jesus' priority on forgiveness, he doesn't say, no, 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 listen, I know what's going on. You don't know what's going on. I'm not going to heal that right now because that's not your biggest problem. What does Jesus do? He not only addresses his biggest, gigantic, immovable problem, he also answers the problem that he came in for. Because in verse 12, the man gets up and walks. He's healed physically. But this is only the evidence of what Christ has done in forgiving him. It's only the proof of the greater healing that we've been talking about this morning, the healing that would bring him back into relationship with God, the healing that would bring him back into relationship with community, that would return dignity and value and identity to him. It's only the sign of something much greater. His walking is testifying to the fact that he has been made whole top to bottom. It's almost as if God uses their broken categories to say, I'm going to work within that. You think that his body tells you about who he is? I'm going to work within that. I'm going to use his body to tell you who I think he is. I'm going to show you what he looks like to me now. It's a sign of something deeper, that God sees him as beautiful and whole. And in light of this great forgiveness that we see that Jesus was pointing towards in this verse of what he would do on the cross and that we look back on now in history, I want to encourage us to do two things in closing, to recognize and to return. First, recognize 
Recognize that if you believe in Jesus Christ as the one who can do this for you, as the one who sees your spiritual paralysis, as the one who is not being condescending towards you, but who draws near to you, who sees the problems that you don't see and wants to fix them, if you have put your faith in Jesus, then you have been made spiritually whole despite whatever you feel today, just as much as that man was made spiritually whole. And one day, the rest of you will be made whole too. Because again, in Jesus' own words, which is harder to do? To heal the body or to heal the soul? If he has healed your soul... If he has done the greater thing, can he not do the lesser thing? Look to the healing of your heart, Christians. Look to the spiritual wholeness that you have right now, today, for the brokenness that you feel in your body, for the brokenness you see in your family. Because Jesus' forgiveness is not the end of who he is. He doesn't stop there. It's the beginning of who he is. It is the spark that sets aflame all that was broken and brings something new. Recognize that if you have been made spiritually whole, the greatest thing has been done and there is only more waiting for you. Take the brokenness that you feel in your life, in your relationships, in your bodies today back to this promise. Recognize what is already true of you and put your hope in what is coming. And don't just recognize, but in that spirit, return to what you have in the absence of that here and now help that you may be seeking of the things that you're asking God about right now that he's not fixing for you, that you really want to be different in the absence of that help. Look to the spiritual help that you have already received. Let that absence, that that negative space, create a break in the clouds for you to look back and see what God has already done for you, the thing that will not change no matter what else changes. Let it open up a hole in the roof of your life to let that healing come through to you, to let that that return back to the place of grace come to you, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, come back to what he has already done for you. Let it create space for you to sit there as you wait for him. Take a look around at what it's done for you. Explore more of how it's changed you, of how it will change your relationships, of of the expectation of all that will come because of that. Sit there. Let that be our home as we wait in the midst of these difficulties. Don't let the pauses in our life, the absences of justice, of hope, of goodness, rob us of even what those most painful absences still reveals, which is the grace, love, and hope of Jesus Christ who does more than we can think or ask. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your unexpected generosity, for your heart that goes beyond what we would ask, for your heart that that gives us the thing that we don't even know to ask for, God but we just confess
that there are so many ways that we don't want that, that we want to be in charge, that we want to work within our categories, that we want you to fit our expectations, that we just want what we want right now, God, and you know what we need. God, would you, would you be gentle towards us? Would you heal our hearts? Would you start a new work in us if we don't know you this morning to just soften our hearts a little bit to see the expansiveness of what you want for us, to just change our categories a little bit? God, would you be gentle with my friends here this morning? Would you be gentle with our hearts that we might hear those beautiful words, your sins are forgiven, and that we might know in our souls that it's really true. In your name and by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.